weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Matthew 4, 12 through 25. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told, me, told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Do you remember those stories in literature and movies in which a place, a location, is so important, it's like the place itself is its own character. Can you think of stories like this? These places are such a big part of the story that the story itself would not be the same without the character that is this place. The place itself is like a part of the cast of characters of the story. Think of uh, try to imagine, actually, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe without Narnia. Or The Wizard of Oz without the land of Oz that you experience going from black and white to color. Am I the only one that's seen that old movie? Or Gone with the Wind without the plantation Terra. Scarlett O'Hara is trying to salvage. Or Middle Earth and The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings without the Shire. And these stories, the places themselves, serve as significant characters. And if those places were not a part of the story, the story itself would be completely different. Well, in our passage today, we'll look at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we'll see that Jesus, in our passage, is more than a king and more than a prophet. We're going to see that the place of his early ministry, the place itself, plays a significant role. Matthew, one of these disciples of Jesus who, as an eyewitness, is writing this account of Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew is showing us with the way that he writes 
his gospel here. Even where Jesus begins his earthly ministry qualifies him to be heaven's king. The place itself is essential to the story of redemption. What we'll see in today's passage is that the land of Galilee, seemingly insignificant place, actually plays a significant role in Jesus' life and ministry. So if you're taking notes, our main point from the text today is this. Jesus is more than a king. Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a king, and Jesus is more than a prophet. And as we reflect on Jesus' ministry today, I pray that we would understand clearly who Jesus is, and that we would consider in our own hearts what our response to him is. Jesus is more than a king. Jesus is more than a prophet. Now when I say this, I'm not saying that Jesus is less than a king or less than a prophet. He is a king. We're going to see that this is clear in this passage. But he's not just a king or any king. And as we'll also see in this passage, Jesus is a prophet. In many ways, he fulfills the role of a prophet in Scripture. And yet, he's not just a prophet or just one of many prophets in Scripture. No, he is the prophet, the one that Moses himself pointed forward to. The prophet who would come. The one who would come and speak, not for God, but be God himself in human flesh, revealing God to us. The word become flesh. We're going to have two sermon points. Can you guess what they are? Point number one, Jesus is more than a king. It's going to be verses 12 to 22. Point number two, Jesus is more than a prophet. Verses 23 to 25. Point number one, Jesus is more than a king. And for context, really quickly, just to summarize where we've been so far. And for you all, uh, we are in a, a short series here in Matthew. This is our last sermon in Matthew for now. We're going to put a little pin in Matthew. And go back to 1 Corinthians the next time I preach in a couple weeks. We're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 11 where we put a pause. The next time we come back to Matthew, we're going to look at Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But in terms of where we've been so far, this passage follows the ministry of John the Baptist in chapter 3. And Jesus' temptation in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now, John the Baptist did his work of preparing the people to meet the Messiah. And God the Father further prepared Jesus by having him be tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, after which he then was tempted by the devil, which we saw last week. Jesus' time in the desert proved two things. One, that Jesus is God's faithful son. He was faithful everywhere Israel failed. And so he's proving that he is able um, to be the true Israel. But he's also... And being faithful to withstand the temptation from Satan, show, he shows that he's the second Adam, the perfect human being that you and I were meant to be, but are not. Which means he's qualified to be the sacrifice for our sins. Now in our passage, Matthew picks up his narrative after John the Baptist had been arrested. You see that in verse 12? And once John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod, Jesus now withdraws to Galilee. It looks like... Pretty clearly, he's seeking to avoid Herod. Herod had just imprisoned John because he didn't like his preaching. And now John's arrest marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John's life was like a big neon sign, a big arrow pointing to Jesus. But you notice that even in his imprisonment and eventually his death by martyrdom, John's life was also foreshadowed. 
If you learn about foreshadowing in your literature classes, you can see that I was not the math science guy in school. I was the English history literature guy. You see here that John's life was foreshadowing. John said unpopular things, and he was thrown in prison for faithfully speaking the truth. And this is foreshadowing. It's a hint of what's to come. Now, John was thrown in prison for faithfully speaking the truth. He hadn't done anything wrong, but because he was faithful, he was eventually killed by Herod. And this points forward to what would happen to Jesus. For Jesus, too, would be faithful. And he, too, would be imprisoned and would die, not because he deserved to die, but because the darkness hates the light. Let me draw your attention right here in verse 12 to a pattern in Scripture. This is a pattern in Scripture. And a fallen world, being faithful to God, may cause the faithful to face troubles. Faithfulness to God may bring trouble into your life. In fact, Jesus promised this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. So we Christians should not be surprised by suffering, even suffering we don't deserve. It happened to John. It would happen to Jesus. Jesus taught that we, his servants, are not above our master. This world will hate the children of heaven. And this is what's happening to John. But note, it will one day all be worth it. As one writer put it, heaven will make amends for all. Now you see here, our point, this first point, is that Jesus is more than a king. How do we see this? Well, we're going to see this in three ways. I've alliterated these three ways. Context, content, and commands. We see here that Jesus is more than just a king, more than a mere king. How do we see this? Well, in three ways. The context of his ministry, the content of his preaching, and then the commands or the demands that he makes of his followers. So first of all, we see that Jesus is more than a king because of the context of his ministry. This is verses 13 to 16. We see that Jesus is more than just any king by the context of Jesus' early ministry. Look again at verses 13 to 16. He left Nazareth, that is Jesus, and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew is going out of his way to show that Jesus is beginning his ministry among both Jews and Gentiles. Matthew has spent the first part of his book highlighting that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Israel's King. He shows all of his qualifications. Chapter 1, you see his genealogy. He's descended, at least his father, by adoption. Joseph is descended from David. Through adoption to Joseph, he is qualified as the son of Joseph, through adoption, to be the king of Israel. He also shows his qualifications through the divine announcement of an angel in Matthew 1, through divine protection in chapter 2, through the prophetic witness of John in chapter 3. But now Matthew's demonstrating that Jesus is not just a king, and not even just Israel's king. He's more than that. While he is Israel's king, he's also the king of the world. And he has come to be the redeemer of the world as well. 
Matthew shows this first by showing the ministry context where Jesus began his ministry in the north in Galilee. Now, at first, it seems like Galilee is just a small detail in the story. Sort of like me telling you about my day. I, I live in Orange and I traveled to Anaheim today. But Matthew knows that Galilee is much more significant than that, more than just the name of a city on a map to help set the setting of the story. Matthew is going to point to its significance in the redemptive history of God's people. Now, Galilee, in terms of its history and Israel's history, was a place ravaged by Assyrian occupation 700 years before. This region was gutted by the Assyrian captivity. This is the very location that Isaiah prophesied about. He was telling Israel that this location is going to be devastated by the Assyrians. But then he wrote that this place of great darkness, he gives them hope, would one day see a great light. And that light is this king who has come to save the world. Matthew will highlight this later in the passage as well. Look down at verses 24 and 25. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, which is even farther north. Now, if you think about Palestine, when you get as far north as Galilee and Capernaum and these other towns listed in verse 25, the farther north you go, the more Gentile, the more Hellenistic, the more Greek-speaking it is, the more Greek culture it has. When you see here, Matthew's highlighting the variety of places that Jesus' followers came from. Look at verse 25. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. The crowds that followed Jesus were both Jews and Gentiles. And the people that Jesus ministered to came from both Judea and Jerusalem in the south. But they also came from the north, from the Decapolis, that is the ten towns, which were Greek-speaking cities. And from Syria, even farther north still. See here by the very ministry context that Jesus is in, we see that he's entered this dark world not to save one people, the Jews. No, he's come to save a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's why his ministry begins here in Galilee. That's why the place Galilee is so significant here in the account of Jesus. It is place where his ministry begins, Galilee, the place Isaiah prophesied where it would all begin. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, the child that would be born, as Jeff read for us, to be the Messiah would minister in Galilee of the Gentiles. He would come to a place that had seen great darkness, the horrors of war. This is a place that had been under the shadow of death by powerful enemies. And it is in this place with a history of so much bloodshed Jesus begins his ministry. Now consider the broader significance of this. Light has dawned through the arrival of Jesus, the light of the world. And know that Matthew is writing with the knowledge of Jesus' eventual death and resurrection himself. He knows that Jesus has arrived to bring heaven's light. And it's not just the people of Galilee who live in darkness. Every person who's ever been born into this world knows the tyranny of the darkness of sin and death. And we can know the liberator has come. He's come to enlighten our darkened minds, our darkened hearts, to set us free from the shadow of death by facing death himself. But we see that Jesus is more than a king by the context of his ministry. We're also going to see, secondly, that he's more than a king by the content of his message. Look at verse 17 again. Look at his message, the content of his message. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, 
because the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see that Jesus' message, the message that he preached, repeats John the Baptist's message. His message back in chapter 3 is literally word for word the same message that Jesus preaches here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, in the mouth of John the Baptist, this phrase meant, prepare, get ready. The king is coming. The kingdom is going to arrive soon. Get ready. It's not here yet, but it's on its way. But do you see that the same phrase in the lips of Jesus takes on even greater significance? So when Jesus says it, it means something slightly more than it's coming soon. When Jesus says it, it means the king of heaven has arrived. And the kingdom will not be far behind. The kingdom is coming now that the king is here. You see what kind of kingdom has come near in verse 17. It's not a worldly kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. What kind of kingdom is it? Verse 17. A kingdom not of this world. Jesus is the king of heaven. Come to earth. And only he can bring heaven's kingdom to earth. You see that he's more than a king. He's the king of heaven. Come to earth. To rule and to bring heaven's kingdom to earth. And this call to repent is no longer repent because the king is coming. But now repent because heaven's king is here. Turn from your sins and trust in him. And you notice what the command is. What the content of the message is in terms of a response. It's repent. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we considered John the Baptist's ministry. What is repentance? Um, one of my favorite jobs as a pastor is to do membership interviews. I love membership interviews. I get a front row seat hearing about God's work in the life of a Christian. Being able to reflect with them how it is that they were saved, how they came to know Christ. And in those interviews, I ask folks to share their testimony. And I do this to care for these individuals to help clarify their own relationship with God. And one of the things that I do is I ask people to share the gospel with me. I ask them to tell me the gospel usually following some order of God-man-Christ response. And you notice, you'll notice if you sit in on some of these, often people leave that last part out, the, the response. They tell us about who God is, that he's holy, he's our creator. Say something about Christ, who he is, as God become man in order to save sinners. Something about who we are as uh, mankind, created in God's image, but fallen through sin. And they share the good news of what Jesus came to do. And often they'll stop there. They'll leave out the final part, the response. So sometimes I have to ask, how do we respond to this good news? What are we to do with this message? And do you see here, Jesus is making it very clear how we respond to this message of repentance. Or how it is sorry, that we respond to this message of the kingdom that is coming, or how we respond as it's listed later in verse 23. How do we respond to the good news of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching? Well, this is the response. We must repent. We must turn. We must turn from darkness to light. We must turn from our sin to Christ. We must turn from our own sin and from uh, this own 
our own world that we were born into, the sinful world, and turn in faith to Christ. We are to repent. What that means is that we need to say that we are sinners, that we are wrong, that we need to be saved, and we have to throw ourselves upon Christ and upon his mercy. Well, you know, I'm going to give an application for us in terms of our evangelism. Friends, when we share the gospel with non-Christians, which I assume we all do or are seeking to do, when you share the gospel with a non-Christian, don't just share the news about what Jesus has done for us. And don't leave people to figure out for themselves how to respond. We must call people to respond to the gospel message of Jesus. And we must tell them a hard word. We must tell them to repent. We must tell them that they are sinners, that they deserve God's wrath, but that there is hope if they turn from their sins and trust in Christ. Their sins can be placed upon Christ, and Christ's perfect righteousness can be applied to them, and they can, through Christ, be brought back into a relationship with their Creator God, to be with Him, to know Him, both now and forever. We must call people to respond to the gospel this way, by repenting turning from sin and turning to Christ in faith for salvation. I'm going to drill in a little more. Parents, are you telling your children the gospel? You need to tell them the gospel. I know your children are cute. I know you love them. I know you adore them. And they are cute. But your children need to be saved because they're sinners. And don't just tell your children Jesus loves them. That is true. Jesus does love them, but it is not enough. Our children have been born in sin and darkness because they are descended from us. We are sinners. We are descended from our sinful parents, and our children need to respond to the knowledge of their sin the same way that we need to respond to it. We need to repent, and we need to turn to Christ and ask Him to take our sins upon Himself. And if we do, we can have hope that the King of Heaven will receive us. For he has come to save us from our sins, to bring sinners from darkness to light by entering the darkness of this world, descending into the darkness of death for our sakes. He came to free us from the penalty of sin, to break the power of sin, and one day to free us from the very presence of sin in our lives. But in order to have Christ do this, we must repent. Brothers and sisters, this is a work that only God can do, and yet he will do it if we turn to him. When we see here that Jesus is more than a king by the context of his ministry, Galilee, we see that he's more than a king by the content of his message. He is the king of heaven. Well, lastly, in this first point, we see that Jesus is more than a king by the commands that he gives. Look at verses 18 to 22. The account of the calling of four disciples. Let me read again 18 to 22. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. We see that Jesus is more than just any old king by the commands that he gives, by the demands that he makes. You see it here with his call to discipleship, follow me. This is a call to follow Jesus. 
Now, this is a, a command, a demand, a decree even, you could call it. But this command is an invitation to draw near to the King of Heaven. To be near Him, to learn of Him, to hear His voice, to watch His life and have a front row seat on His ministry, to become even His apprentice in ministry. What a joy to be invited to know Jesus up close and personal. To know our God and Heaven's King in a personal way. Notice it is a command, and as the king of heaven, he has the right to make demands. He has the authority to do it. But as one of these disciples would later write, John, in 1 John 5, 3, his commands are not burdensome. Don't you love that? John, someone who received these first commands right here. Come, follow me. Leave family and your Vocation, your job behind, and follow me, John is able to say his commands are not burdensome. The things that he asks of us, the things that he demands, are not to crush us, but actually to lift us up, to cause us to thrive. Well, he gives them a command. He also gives them a new purpose. He not only gives commands and makes demands, he gives a new purpose. These fishermen are given a new goal in life. No longer fishing for stinky fish, they're now to be fishing for people. Jesus had a mission given to him by his father to save a people for himself. He's now recruiting these people, giving them demands, but he's also giving them a new purpose and goal, a new priority, to be a part of God's mission to save sinners, to take part as under fishermen, under the great fisherman that is Jesus. And you know, friends, if Jesus is your king, this is your mission, too, to fish for people. This is why we encourage evangelism. We have a job to do. It's not just to have as, uh, an as comfortable life here in this world as possible before going to heaven. No, it is our job to be a part of Christ's great commission to make disciples of all nations, or as he puts it here, to fish for people. This is our mission. This is the reason we're still on earth, and he hasn't brought us home to heaven yet. Because there are people who need to be fished for and brought into the kingdom. He gives them a command. Follow. Do you see what the response has to be? Obedience. And you notice the example of these first four disciples, how they do it. It says in both cases they did it immediately. They not only followed and obeyed, they surrendered their lives to Jesus. Well, Jesus at another time is going to be asking others to follow him. And this is in the book of Luke. People were giving him excuses. Do you remember? One of them asks Jesus, I'll follow you, just wait. I need to go wait for my dad to die. And once I bury him, then I will follow you. And what does Jesus tell him? Let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Another one says, I will follow Jesus. Just let me go say goodbye to my family. And what does Jesus say? Follow me immediately. The person who's put their hand to the plow should not look back. Jesus demands obedient surrender. But notice also that this call, this command, has a cost to it. The disciples who followed Jesus had to count the cost to follow him. You see that they were some, there were some things here that they had to leave behind. 
to follow Jesus? What do they have to leave behind? Well, look at verse 20. What do they leave behind in verse 20? Yeah, they left their nets, it says. How about verse 22? What did they leave behind? They left their boat behind. They left their jobs behind. Jesus' call in their lives meant a change in job and vocation. But to leave their nets and boats behind meant they were leaving the security of a job and steady paycheck behind too. Notice in verse 22, they left someone else behind. Who did the sons of Zebedee leave behind? They left Zebedee behind, their father. See that the call of Jesus and the lives of James and John cost their father Zebedee as well. His family business succession plan wasted. It cost him his retirement plan as well. What was his retirement plan? He didn't have social security. It was his good, sturdy sons who'd been trained up as fishermen to be able to keep fishing and provide for him in his old age. And what happened here? Well, not only did it cost these men their jobs, it cost their father his own security in the future as well. Sometimes following Jesus costs us relationships. Now, Matthew doesn't highlight what the father was doing, what the father was thinking, what the father was saying. Was he yelling after them, get back here now? We don't know. Was he thrilled for them to go and follow Jesus? We don't know. It doesn't say. But do you know that sometimes following Jesus, as he tells us, will cost us relationships? Sometimes it costs us a joyful family relationship. Sometimes it will cost us friends. For some people, it will cost a homeland or a country. We had members of our church in Dubai who came from Muslim countries who came to know Christ through the witness of our, our church members. They were citizens of Muslim countries that do not allow for Christian citizens, and they do not allow for conversion to Christianity. I remember meeting with one of these brothers who had a visa in his passport expiring, and he had to fill out an application form to get a new visa to live in the UAE with a passport from a country, a Muslim country, that did not allow their citizens to be Christian. And one of the questions on his visa application is, what religion are you? And I asked him, what are you going to do? And he looked at me, surprised that I would even ask. He said, well, I can't lie. I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. And Jesus says that if I deny him before men, he will deny me before his father. I have to say I'm a Christian. Now he's stuck with a visa in his passport that says he's a Christian, with a passport that will not allow him to be a Christian. And what did this mean for him? Well, it meant it cost him his homeland to follow Christ. He couldn't go back home. Just to go back home and to go through customs in his hometown with a visa in his passport that said he was a Christian would mean at least imprisonment, maybe death. I've seen converts to Christianity from different religions who then had to face persecution by their parents, threats of death, people who've had to literally leave their homeland and their country to find a place where they could claim asylum and try to set up a new life somewhere else. And yet all of the, these brothers and sisters that I've known who've done this have been so joyful in doing it. And they've learned along the way that this world is not their home. They've learned along the way that the things that God takes from us, he doesn't take from us without giving back to us more in abundance. I wonder, friends, 
whether you are ready for the cost Jesus is going to ask of you to follow him. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? I was talking to some missionary friends recently. They were talking about their training at the IMB and how there was a man there, Zane Pratt, teaching at the IMB and challenging these new missionaries as they were getting ready to go overseas to be aware of their own idols, the, the idols of their own culture, their own country. And he said, you Americans, you might not bow down and worship idols, but you have idols. And he said, you Americans have four very profound idols. Those idols in the 21st century America are comfort, convenience, children, and health. And he said, you, you watch when any Christian has their comfort challenged, has their convenience challenged, has their children challenged, has their health challenged. All of a sudden, they struggle to trust God. All of a sudden, their reaction to God is strong. Now, he told these missionaries, if you're willing to leave home and go overseas to take the gospel, it means you've probably already killed those first two idols, that of comfort and that of convenience. But he said, watch, those last two may get you. He said, so many missionaries leave the field if they sense that it will cause their children not to thrive, or if they sense it will cause their health not to thrive. Well, whether God calls you to be a missionary or God simply challenges you by bringing trials into your life, I wonder, will you be willing to continue to follow Jesus when it's hard or when it costs you more than you ever expected it would? These four disciples left their jobs, they left their homes, they left their families behind to follow the homeless king. Jesus said, foxes have dens, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and those that follow him should not expect to have a comfortable life in the here and now. When we become Jesus' disciples, we don't know what he might ask us to do for him. We must be ready to give him anything he asks. John Piper helpfully answered the question, how do we count the cost? The cost that it will take to follow Jesus and to be one of his disciples. How do we do it? Someone asked him in his Ask Pastor John podcast. He answered it. You need to sign on the dotted line and you need to write God a blank check. You need to tell Jesus, anything you ask of me, I'm, I'm ready to give it to you. And assume he may take it all. But then you need to assume that once you have given him all, whatever it is he asks, that you will be able to say with Paul, I count it all a loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being known by him. Anything that Paul had to give up for the sake of the gospel, anything that Christ took away from him, he says, I count it all a loss for the great gain of knowing Christ and being known by him. As John Lee preached for us recently from Mark 10, anything that Jesus takes from us, he promises back a hundredfold in this life and in the next life, eternal life, with persecutions too. Well, friends, whatever it is that Jesus asks of you, he promises to make up for it all in abundance so that we will be able to say in the end, I gave up nothing, I gained everything. Do you know that you should not look around at the things others are or aren't giving up or that are or aren't having taken from them and begin doing the comparing game? We don't know what it is that Jesus may ask of us individually. We don't know what Jesus may ask of our brothers and sisters in Christ individually. 
Uh, let me encourage you to read John 21. Jesus tells Peter, after restoring him to ministry, in John 21, he tells Peter, one day you're going to be crucified for me. He gives Peter a glimpse of where he's headed. When Peter heard this call, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus told him, one day you're going to spread your arms out and you're going to be led to a place you do not want to go. Peter was shocked to hear that this is what he would have to go through. So he points out John. He's like, what about that guy? What about John? Is that going to happen to him too? Remember what Jesus told him? If John is meant to stay alive until I return, what is that to you? That's none of your business. What I ask another of my disciples to do. What does he tell to Peter? You follow me. You follow me. Repent and turn from your sins and trust in me. And then you follow me all your days and you trust me. I have good plans for you and you can trust me. Whatever it is that I ask. Whatever it is that I take away. It will be worth it all. Well, Jesus is more than a king. He makes shocking demands. We see from his context, Galilee, from the content of his message, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and from here, the commands or demands that he makes, that Jesus is more than a king. But we see finally, verses 23 to 25, point number two, and much more quickly, Jesus is more than a prophet too. Pick up there in verse 23. Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. You see here, Jesus' ministry summarized by three things. You can see it in the three verbs, or verbal phrases. Teaching in their synagogues, verse 23, Preaching the good news of the kingdom, verse 23, and finally, healing every disease and sickness among the people. These are the three things that he was doing. Teaching, preaching, healing. Teaching shows that his ministry was a word ministry, and he was instructing his followers about this kingdom. Preaching means that he was proclaiming this message. Proclaiming it, requiring a response, declaring this truth requiring a response of repentance and faith and then surrender to this king of heaven. You notice that his ministry was a word ministry, and in this way it was like the prophets. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's even doing miracles, which some of the prophets did. He's meeting their needs. He's overcoming the effects of the curse, overcoming the effects of the fall. If you remember in the Old Testament, some of the prophets did some miracles. Moses was used by God to do some miracles. Opening the Red Sea, opening uh, the stone where water came. Joshua did some miracles, opening the Jordan River. Uh, stopping the sun for a, a short time, one afternoon. There were some miracles that these prophets did. Elijah did some miracles. Remember the fire from heaven? Remember the oil and the flour that continued to be renewed with the widow or the widow's son that was brought back to life? Elisha, 
got a double portion of Elijah's ministry and did twice as many miracles as Elijah did. But even then, these prophets very often had to pray and ask God to do these things because they were not, in their own power, able to do it. And yet Jesus is more than a prophet here. He's healing all of their diseases. And he isn't praying and asking God to do it for him. He's doing it himself. He is more than a prophet. He is more than a king in terms of his authority. But he is also more than a prophet. He is, though, busy doing word ministry. He's speaking God's word. This is the way that God accomplishes his purposes. This is the way that the kingdom is spread. Now, if you were to spread a kingdom, if you were to seek to expand a kingdom on earth, you would look to do it with some armies, right? With some display of force. And this isn't the way heaven's kingdom comes. It comes slowly. It comes little by little. It comes by word of mouth. It comes by God's word being proclaimed. And in this way, Jesus fulfills the role of a prophet, revealing the truth through his word, through his teaching, through his instruction. Not like their rabbis. No, he is teaching with authority. And he is preaching, spreading the news of the kingdom. But he's also healing, meeting the needs of his people. Demonstrating with his miracles what it is that he has come to eventually accomplish, to reverse the effects of sin and death, the effects of the curse. He's giving them a, an echo of Eden, of what creation originally should have been. He's also giving them a glimpse of glory, what one day things will be in the recreation. But he is demonstrating through his ministry here that he is, secondly, more than a prophet. Now, this... Uh, is going to lead up to the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going get to get to this now. I'm going to give you a little uh, spoiler. In the next chapter, the next three chapters, five through seven, Jesus is going to go up on a mountain, and he is going to teach. And we're going to see there that Jesus is better than Moses, the lawgiver, the one through whom the law came. He's going to demonstrate that he's a better mediator. He is going to teach three chapters and rather than simply communicating the law to God's people he's going to show that he is the lawgiver himself and he is the better mediator you see here hints of Jesus as both prophet and priest sorry prophet and king in the chapters to come you're going to see that he's a better priest a better mediator here though we see Jesus as more than a king more than a prophet. Well, friends, if he is a prophet, what is our response to him? If he is not just a prophet, but the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, this prophet who was to come, God himself in human flesh, how do we respond to him? Well, we need to listen to him. That's the only right response to Jesus, the one who's more than a prophet. Friends, are, are you listening to Jesus? Friends, do you listen to him? Do you give ear to him? Do you take time to draw near to him and to hear his voice? Do you treasure his word? Do you delight to commune with him? 
Well, if he is more than a prophet, the prophet, the one through whom we are able to understand who God is, the, the word become flesh. Friends, we must listen to him. You know, all of us are, are listening to something, listening to someone. It may be the voice in our own head. It may be the voices of those around us. It may be the voice of culture, the voice of media, the voice of entertainment. But we're listening to someone or something all the time. We need to counteract all of those voices in order to hear the words of Jesus. And we can do that by reading God's word. Friends, let me encourage you to prioritize hearing God's word. Whether it's gathering with God's people regularly and being under the preaching of God's word. Whether it's drawing near to the Lord in your own weekly, daily devotions. Let me encourage you, friends, to respond to this one who's more than a prophet by listening to him. And if he is the king, what is our response to him? Well, we must surrender. We must serve him. We must obey him. We owe him, heaven's king, all of our allegiance. And this one who is heaven's king, who's come to earth to bring heaven's kingdom, he must be not only our savior, but he must be our Lord as well. Friends, is it clear to those around you that Jesus is your king? Is it clear to those around you that you have surrendered to Jesus as the king? Is it more clear to you today than it was a year ago that you are more and more surrendered to Jesus? Or are you perhaps less and less surrendered to him? Has your love for him grown cold? Friends, let me encourage you to give this question good thought. Are you living a life surrendered to heaven's king? And if not, seek to renew that allegiance today. Sign on the dotted line. Write out that blank check. Give him anything that he asks of you. And once, he, once you have done that, you'll know that anything he does ask, well, you've already signed it over to him, you'll be able to release those things with joy, having counted the cost, ready to follow him all, all of your days. Well, friends, Jesus is more than a king and more than a prophet. Let's pray we respond to him as he demands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he humbled himself to come to earth to save sinners like us. Thank you for revealing him to us through your word. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to respond to him as he requires, as he demands. Lord, we pray that in surrendering ourselves to our king, opening our ears to the true prophet, we would see you using us in Christ's kingdom for your purposes. We would be a part of your mission and find joy in it until the time when our faith becomes sight and we no longer walk with Christ by faith, but are with him forever. Lord, we long for that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.
Amen.